Good morning, everyone. It is October 18th, Thursday. And it's about, what is it, 8.45 in the morning. 43 degrees outside. Kind of foggy, but I'm going to try it. Both kitties are out. The crow fountain has been put away for the winter, so it's quieter out here. But not much point in sitting on the east side of the house, as dim as it is today. Whew, that east wind is a little brisk, too. But I should be a little bit out of the way here. <sighs> so I didn't podcast yesterday because I did a blog post instead. Just kind of worked out for my mood and my timing and so forth. And I wanted to... Uh, tell a story that I thought I'd better be careful how I told it. So you could check that out yesterday. Um, I'm aware that when I talk through stuff that I am somewhat more um, less tactful, maybe we could say. I don't um, have that same opportunity to uh, well, certainly to revise, but also to um, allow for consideration of whether or not I should say something. <laughs> mm, first sip. So, yeah, this is our third third day, fourth day. of. Well, I guess it starts Sunday, so that's five days of pretty cloudy, stormy weather for us, which is a lot. Uh, we have seen the sun here and there. Um, but we've been largely socked in. Hugely unusual for us. It's supposed to clear off again tomorrow, so that'll be good. And I've been busily reading The Lions of Arasan, thinking about that a lot. It was funny, one of my <laughs> friends, I think Kelly Robson, asked me if I was done reading it yet. And I said, no, not yet. <laughs> and I looked, and if I was reading it on paper, it would be 628 pages so I'm at like 67% now, I think. So I'm I'm going at a pretty good clip at this point. But yeah, this is not a book that you finish in a couple of days, or at least not me. Some of you crazy readers out there could probably do it. But I read, I realize I read slowly these days. I think I read too slowly sometimes because I think I'm, reading for nuance that isn't there. I think that some of my impatience with some books that I read these passages for looking for nuance and meaning that's just not there. And then I get impatient with the book and think that it's boring or that uh, flat. And I think I'm just not supposed to be reading it that slowly. Um, so I'm trying to get better with some of the boring sections of Lions of Alverson. I am trying to read faster and skim them. Uh, he does delve a great deal into like the different kingdoms and kings, and every, you know. And he'll do this thing where every once in a while he sort of um, devolves out into a character's background, uh, which. I don't think we always care. Sometimes it feels slightly self-indulgent. And it's interesting because the camera really goes in and out. Uh, there, Sometimes it backs way off, like these passages where he talks about the kings and the politics and the history and 
all of this stuff and the camera's way far back and it's like you're looking at the map and then he'll zoom in on a specific scene and there are some scenes that he doesn't put on the page and I wish he would have because there are things that I was interested in uh, and then there are other scenes that are so vivid and so well realized and so interesting um, there is a scene that I just read was it might have been yesterday uh, where there's the assassination attempt on the young boys and Yehan is there and that whole scene from had a wonderful beginning middle and end was crisply rendered and fascinating and um, almost like an exercise in a like a heist story you know how how the attempt is made and the uh, counter attempts to foil it and it was a great little bit and I kind of wondered if it was a short story some of you who know more of the history than I do might know that it felt like a short story that had sort of been inserted into the longer text I also discovered I don't think I mentioned this the other day because I didn't realize it for a long time that the that the landscape that this that Al-Rasan is essentially Spain. And if you go look at the map in the book, it's obviously Spain. And I've liked it better before I knew that. I've got an issue with uh, this thing where fantasy is, where you essentially have a human history uh, or human world and then it's given a fantasy gloss. And I, I know I've ranted about this, at least on blogs, because I sure see this happen a lot where, you know, I mean, alternate history is definitely a thing. And I think alternate history can be very interesting, you know, where you take actual human history and change one thing, you know, like what if Hitler hadn't been assassinated or hadn't been killed? Uh, that sort of thing. What if the Japanese had won World War II? Uh, what if Napoleon had not been defeated at Waterloo? All of you know those sorts of things where you look at pivotal points and change what may have happened. What if some medical discovery was not made or was made earlier? Uh, but this is kind of a representation of fantasy where it's built on the foundation of of a historical world. And to me, it's kind of cheating. Uh, and I know that I probably should not be uh, accusing a lion of fantasy, uh, like Guy Gabriel K, of cheating. But, you know, if you make your map be Spain and you put your cities where the Spanish cities are and the landscape exactly as the Spanish landscape is, well, you know, that's like a whole swath of world building you don't have to do. And then once you do that, even though up till now I had been okay with the different religious factions, with the Kindath so clearly parallel to the Jewish people, um, and the, uh, <laughs> the people of the desert to the south, which, you know, I realizes Tunisia uh, 
you know, with the, you know, in this whole holy war that's shaping up. Uh, Isabel just came running around the corner, d delighted to go outside or come back inside. I guess she'd had enough. So I think that uh, yeah. When when you've made up religions, you have a certain freedom from from human ideology. And certainly, I make up religions. I've done that a couple of times, and I enjoy that because, for me, that allows me to get to the heart of of spiritual belief of what people truly believe in, what we're trying to evolve towards spiritually, all of that. Um. I shouldn't toss that off that way. All of that, all that stuff. But, you know, for me, transformation is a huge theme. And, and I enjoy using um, the device of a god or a goddess to, to demonstrate that. Uh, I've always been fascinated by the idea. I took a course in college on Greek mythology. And I learned that, you know, the supposedly funny stories of the Greek gods and how the gods, you know, moved among people and did different things and interfered in human events, that all of that is a fairly elaborate metaphor for human qualities. Uh, you know, Athena, you know, represents wisdom and cleverness and clear-mindedness, um, along with uh, the kind of battle. In fact, I, I modeled Danu on Athena. For There's a little nugget for you all. So anyway, I really like the ideas of of the gods and goddesses representing the heights of of human spiritual aspiration. And but in the lines of Al Rasan, the religion is kind of reduced to me. That's a reduction uh, to the level of human religion where it plays into politics. And I liked this interplay of the different religious disciplines before I realized they were so obviously lifts on Islam and Christianity and Judaism uh, with the same kinds of um, relative powers. I mean, he's changed some things, but, you know, otherwise the geographic distribution is the same and I don't know. I think some of the stereotypical representations of the people of those religions is the same. And I'm not really good at picking out stuff that has to do with uh, social, I don't know, uh, you know, misrepresentations of people, uh, especially marginalized people. I'm because I'm more on the privileged side. I don't always pick those things up. And yet to me, I think, wow, I wonder, you know, how people feel about that, you know. Well, anyway, so I think that's interesting. Um, I have the other problem I have that there is a difference in that the world is made fantastic by, so far as I could tell, two qualities. Um, there are two moons, <laughs> which is like, okay, I did that in Sorcerer's Moons to make it very clearly not our world, and I, apparently I was following in standing on the shoulders of giants by doing this because that's what he's done. It's, no, it's not Spain because there are two moons. <laughs> um, and then one of the characters has uh, 
clairvoyance, uh, extrasensory perception. Um, you know, and it's interesting, I was looking at when this book came out, because there are a lot of similarities to A Song of Ice and Fire, too, and a lot of similarities uh, between this boy, of course, who is clairvoyant, and the boy um, in the Stark family. I can't remember which one it is. Bren Brendan? Yeah, doesn't matter. The one who gets hurt and becomes a sorcerer. Uh, you know, there's always the boy who is like the magical chosen one, which I have problems with too, but... Uh, all this said, I should stop and say that I'm still very much enjoying this book. There are things that I love about it, and it is lighting some things up for me creatively. But, um, you know, I, I go back to this thing that I know I've ranted about, definitely on blogs, uh, about, like, what is fantasy? And, like, Outlander getting um, awards for being the best fantasy series. Well, Outlander takes place you know, well, 90%, because there's some stuff that's in World War II England and America and forward into the 60s and so forth. But what, 90% is probably fair. Um, it takes place in 1500s in Scotland and then in America, but it's all historically accurate. I mean, it's beautifully historically accurate. And the single fantasy element is time travel. You know, it's like, well, without time travel, the story couldn't exist. So, arguably, it would fall apart without that. But that's all the fantasy that's in there. You know, it's like two moons and a kid that can see the future or see where he's not. It's really more of a clairvoyance. He can see stuff that's happening from far away. Um, you know, and it's like, well, is that enough to make it fantasy? And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of books now that are... You know, like in romance, uh, historical romances, like medieval and renaissance romances, being represented as fantasy romances. Uh, but, you know, they're still fairly historically accurate, so far as I can tell. I mean, I'm not, I'm no expert. But they, uh, yeah, they, they, you know, like maybe they'll have a token magic item, like a magic sword, or maybe she can heal pretty well. It's all, you know, she heals and he has the magic sword. That's, uh, I've switched that up sometimes because that's fun to do. But, you know, it, it's irritating to me because, you know, of course this is always an impulse in marketing if a lot of people are saying we want more fantasy romance to say, oh, here, here's something that could be plausibly defined as fantasy romance but you know then you read it and you think well that that didn't scratch my fantasy romance itch and I I just really um you know I mean obviously this isn't something where we're like gonna go out and save lives or anything by drawing hard bright lines but it it does bother me that um that fantasy in particular gets so blurred and is difficult to define um, on the CEFWA self-publishing committee, we were talking about uh, the fantasy story bundle. We did the science fiction story bundle earlier this year, and the theme was space opera. And so now we're doing the fantasy story bundle, and we were talking about themes for it. Uh, because if you do just fantasy, you get such a wide variety of stuff. And so we try to give it a theme. Hello, Jackie boy. 
He's come up from the weeds, and now he is... You're not going out there. Heading towards the street, he picks up pace. <laughs> uh, it, it just... Um, if you have a theme, it just gives the collection more clarity and sort of helps us choose what to include in it. Yeah, come on back. And so I had suggested the theme of kick-ass heroines because I thought that would be a fun theme that would allow room for fantasy romance. Also things like contemporary fantasy and urban fantasy. And one of the guys on the committee um, who apparently missed the discussions about the kick-ass heroines because it was when we were discussing the the people who had submitted books for the bundle. And he said, well, there were books that he objected to because he said, well, I don't think these urban fantasy books should be in here. He said, because when I think fantasy, I think Tolkien. So this is, uh, if you guys ever want to like really irritate me, you could tell me that when you think fantasy, you think Tolkien. Because <laughs> I am just so tired of fantasy being defined by what Tolkien wrote. Um, you know, and I'm not saying that he didn't write wonderful stuff, and you know, I read The Lord of the Rings, and I love The Lord of the Rings, and The Hobbit is certainly central to culture, and all of this, but there's, you know, Tolkien started writing in the early 1900s. Um, Lord of the Rings came out, you know, sort of post you know, around the First World War and Second World War. But, you know, that makes it now, that when he started writing, was over a hundred years ago. You know, and so that would be like saying, you know, science fiction hasn't been delimited in this same way. You know, that's like, you know, we, we agree that other genres have moved since those, <laughs> the early 1900s. You know, and it's like, no, there is more to fantasy than Tolkien. You know, it's like for science fiction, we could think of all of these subgenres, you know, and they're all like, oh, well, you know, because we're talking about the next science fiction story bundle now. And so people are saying, oh, well, we could do first contact, or we could do aliens, or we could do alternate timelines. We could do, you know, see, that, that gets to be under science fiction time travel, alternate history. So we're talking about all these different science fiction themes. But in fantasy, people are like, well, shouldn't it be more like Tolkien? <laughs> and, and admittedly, this guy does not write fantasy. And when I um, explained to him my objections, including my Tolkien started writing over 100 years ago uh, rant, he, he did back down and, and conceded the point. So that was good of him. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go in because it's a little cool. I just have to keep an eye on Jackson, though. He's definitely acting like he'd like to escape. Yeah, got my lace caught on the threshold. Oh, he's watching me go inside. He's excited, thinking that that's going to be a escape opportunity. Oh, no, maybe he's going to come in. That'd be good. So anyway, I, I think this is one of my themes that I would like to continue to find exactly what makes something fantasy more than just being an alternate. You want to come in? Come on. Come in. Let's go. Yeah, come on. Are you going to go down there? <laughs> I 
yeah, he says it's a little chilly too. So, yeah, I mean, to me, I think that there needs to be more of an element of the fantastic, which certainly, that's fantasy, right? Um, certainly Tolkien had that. You know, you have all of these creatures. You need something more than a single magic sword or people having some kind of extrasensory perception. So there, there is my manifesto for the day. Thank you all for sharing my first cup of coffee. And I hope you all have a lovely Thursday. I am very close to done with Harlan and Ursula's story. I'm at 20,000 words. So we are closing in on the ending. And you all will get to read it soon. So have a lovely day. And I will talk to you all tomorrow. Bye-bye.